Um, quick show of hands. How many of you uh, were here last week? Okay. And how many of you were not here last week? Okay. All right. Sounds good. So, um, by way of review, I basically asked a bunch of questions last week and left you with some cliffhangers that I'm going to pick up from this week. The questions were about the structure of the Haggadah, specifically um, about, uh, we're looking really at a particular part of the Haggadah, what might be called the beginning of Magid. There's a lot of preliminaries in the Haggadah, but Magid, or the story that we're telling in the Haggadah, seems to begin from the words that you have towards the top of your screen, if you could see that. Metchila ovdei avadazara hayo it even begins, as every great story does, with the words once upon a time in Hebrew, right? Metchila, way back in the very beginning, But I suggested to you last week it's a peculiar way of telling the story because what happens is that the Baal Haggadah jumps around a lot for about four or five paragraphs until the narrative settles down. And when it settles down, it settles down into a nice, easy retelling of the story of the Haggadah, um, the device that the Torah uses when it finally settles down, are drashos on six psukim in Sefer Dvarim, beginning with Arami Avadavi. These are the psukim of the Parshas Habikurim, the declaration that the farmer makes when he brings his first fruits to the temple about the long road that it took to get there. But Arami Avadavi appears pretty far out in Magid, and we've got a lot of stuff happening beforehand. And what I was focused on you is the five paragraphs before Arami Avadavi, which seem very strange and difficult to comprehend exactly what they're doing here. These paragraphs begin with Mitchila of the Avadazarahayovasena, which sort of kind of begins a story. But there are a number of problems with it. Essentially, the problems that I raised to you with you last week boil down to the following. Originally, our forefathers were and now, and now, God has brought us into his service. One of the strange things is it's not clear what this even means, and now God has brought us into his service. When exactly is now? When exactly is now has a number of possibilities. One possibility, and now God has brought us into His service, could be now in 2017, as we're reading the Haggadah, God has brought us into His service. Another possibility is now means some other now. Like maybe the now at the moment that the proof text for this is being quoted. Because look at the proof text. How do you know Shenemar, as it says, by Yomer Yoshua al a verse in Joshua. Joshua spoke to everybody. Maybe it means in the times of Joshua. Joshua is when now is. Another possibility is the now is much earlier, before Joshua, because Joshua himself is going to begin to tell a story. Notice the stories within a story within a story. Here we are in 2017 and we're telling a story. But. Um, we tell a story and we invoke Joshua to tell a story. But the, when we invoke Joshua to tell a story, Joshua is actually telling a story. And his story goes all the way back to the times of Terah, Chaviyah, Avram, Vavinachar. 
the times of the forefathers of Avram, and maybe the Va'achshav is something within that third iteration of a story, the story within a story within a story, where first, listen to the verse, Vayomer Yeshua Kolam Koamar Hashem Yisrael, thus says God, Originally your forefathers were on the other side of the river, Terach of Avram and of Yenachar, Terach, father of Avram, father of Nachar, Vayavdu Elohim Acherim, and there they worshipped other gods. And now here's the Va'achshav. Va'ekach et Avichem et Avram Meyer Ve'anar Va'olechotav. And I took Avram and I walked him throughout the land. So maybe that's what it means, Va'achshav, that God took Abraham and brought him into his service. Kind of sounds like that in a way because Va'ekach. Is, is, is actually sort of counterintuitive. If somebody would have asked you what was so special about Avram, you would have told me something about how Avram uh, discovered God or how Avram went through the fiery furnace or Avram did something amazing. But if you would ask Yoshua what was so special about Avram, if you look at the verbs and you pay attention to the verbs, the verbs suggest that what was special about Avram was that God chose him. Your forefathers were idolaters going back to time immemorial until one day, Va'ekach at Avram. Who did that? God did it. Right? God takes responsibility for it. God took Avram and changed everything and brought him close to his service. Anyway, so there's a lot of ambiguities as to exactly what Va'achshav means over here. Let me try to get this back for you. Um... But the rest of the verse is also puzzling. Why do we have to hear about everything? We have to hear about Avram walking in the land. Avram walked in the land. Why is that so important? And then I gave him lots of kids. But you really gave him lots of kids? I gave him Isaac. There's only one kid. And then Yitzchak had two kids, Yaakov and Esav. I guess that's more than one. I gave Esav Harseir as his inheritance, the Yaakov of It's a strange verse. Why is it so important during the, when we're talking about the Haggadah to mention Esav? It's not his holiday. Why do I need to know about Esav's inheritance? Why is that part of our story? And similarly, it's just sort of, out of it's strange, because, you know, if Esav is getting his inheritance, you would imagine, and the next part of the verse should have been, and I gave Yaakov, you know, his inheritance, but it's not. It's Yaakov and his children went down to Mitzrayim. Just a strange verse. And what I mentioned to you last week is that, I think I mentioned to you last week, is that what's particularly strange about this is if somebody played a game with you and said, okay, you're the author of the Agata. You have to begin the Haggadah with quotations from Joshua chapter 24. We'll play pick a verse, any verse in chapter 24 to begin the Haggadah with. Which verses would you begin it with? So you could begin it with these three verses. Or you could begin it with other verses. If we just go into chapter, Exodus chapter 20, sorry, Joshua chapter 24 for a second. So I think as we mentioned last week, this is Joshua at the end of his life, gathers everyone together, and 
you know, here's the last verse that we talked about in the Haggadah. But look at the next verse. The verse that's not quoted in the Haggadah. The next verse in chapter 24. And when the Jews were in Mitzrayim, I sent Moshe. And I sent Aaron, and I plagued them. And after that, I took them out of Egypt. And I took your forefathers out of Egypt. But they came to the sea. And there Egypt ran after them. And they screamed to God. But God protected them. And the water converged upon them. And you, your eyes, your own eyes, you saw all this and then you stayed in the desert many years I mean that's a great little pithy retelling of Yitzhak Mitzrayim right there but those are not the verses we quote the most relevant verses of all why? why why do we not get to the interesting stuff here why are we doing the prologue so going back to the Haggadah that was some of the questions we asked and we continued further we said, you know, it's strange that the next thing we have is you'd imagine, well, all right, why am I saying this? Why do we have this verse from Joshua? Because, you know, we're just interested in, in setting the stage for Sheba Mitzrayim. And the last thing we said is Yaakov Ban of Yard Mitzrayim. That's kind of what we're interested in getting to. The Yaakov and his children came down to Egypt. So if you were the author of the Haggadah, and you just quote a verse of Joshua that ends with the Yaakov Ban of Yard Mitzrayim, and it was your job to write a book that tells the story of Sheba Mitzrayim and Tzitzit Mitzrayim, what do you think the next thing you'd say is? And we were in Mitzrayim, and what happened? It was really bad. We were enslaved. It was terrible. But then God took us out, right? I mean, you should start telling the story. That's not what we do. Instead, we now go backwards in history. Back, all the way back to Avram, Baruch Shamar Havtachton. We tell the story of the Brit Ben Abtarim. And the really serious question I asked you last week is that the Brit Ben Abtarim is actually, if you really think about it, the text that we would most want to avoid if we were telling the story of the Haggadah. If you were the writer of the Haggadah, the last text that you would want anyone to be familiar with on the night of the Seder would be Genesis chapter 15. Because in Genesis chapter 15, what do we hear about? We hear about a dark prophecy. God tells Avram, Your children will be strangers in the land, not their own. They'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Right? And why is that the text that any author of the Haggadah would probably want to avoid, not bring up in the Haggadah? The answer is because if you bring up that text, you're making yourself vulnerable to a question from little Jimmy or little Yankel or little Hani. Right? Little Hani or little Yankel or little Jimmy can raise their hand. And having read Genesis chapter 15, this dark prophecy that God tells Avram, your children are going to be strangers in the land not their own, be enslaved, oppressed there. What question might they ask that is like a Haggadah killer question? It just destroys the whole Seder. The question is... question is... Why am I supposed to be so happy for God taking us out of Egypt if He's the one who put us there in the first place? 
Right? What's this whole celebration about? In the words of the Ben Arasha. Why are we celebrating? Why can't I say to God, in the words of the yeshiva educated around here, why isn't this a migu? Right? Why can't you go to God and say, God, you know, I really appreciate you taking me out of Egypt, but hey, you didn't have to put me down there in the first place. I have a deal. Just don't bring me down to Egypt and don't take me out. We'll call it square. Right? Why... So why am I so happy that, okay, so you put me out of Egypt, I suffered for 400 years, then you took me out. The Baal Gadar, for some strange reason, is not bothered by it, because the Baal Gadar brings up the Brit Ben Abtarim, the text we would want to avoid, and not only that, listen to the spin. Baruch Shomer of Tachtel Yisrael. Thank God he kept his promise. He took us out of Egypt. Because God eventually brought us out, just like he said he would. I mean, that sounds very, you know like political spin right? I mean it's like something out of 2017 you know the campaign or something like that's how you're spinning it like this sounds like fake news I mean you know that's not what happened what happened was is that God put us there what are you so happy about no we're very happy what's going on alright so for whatever reason we're talking about Genesis chapter 15 the one text we'd want to avoid then what do we do? We have the Hishamda. The Hishamda lava Senu Velanu. And I asked you last week, what does the He refer to? The He is this, we say, and it has always stood for us. Right? The anti Semites always want to kill us, but God always saves us. The Hishamda. And it has always stood for us. And last week we established. And this is where I kind of ended off with you. That Vihi Shamda means, right, the pronoun Vihi, and it has always stood, referred to us, actually refers to the last thing we mentioned in, in the Haggadah, which is the Brisbane Amsarim. What it means is that the promise of the Brisbane Amsarim has always stood for us. Which is to say that it wasn't a one time promise that God was making that God would save us from slavery in Egypt. It was a promise that God would always be there for us. The Brisbane Absarim has always stood for us throughout the generations and saved us from anti-Semites. And the question I think I ended with last week was the problem... Which is, I think, can I introduce you to my little sort of facetious thing I call the the uh, uh, board meter. Right? So it's like, you know, um, you know how, like, you're at Shepard Ruffins or something, right? And somebody says a book, right? So somebody says a book at Shepard Ruffins, what do you do? Right? They talk for like 10 minutes, and then you say, very nice, right? Okay. But, like, that's what you say, right? But in your head, right? What are you thinking? You have this little meter, right? I call it a board meter, where it, like, from zero to ten, where you sort of assess the likelihood that what is being said is actually true, right? Okay? And so, like, ten is, like, really true. Like, you're so sure this is true, you bet your house on it, right? Like, zero is this is not true. You know what I mean? 
So, you know, you're listening to somebody say this little board, there's Demetrius, and there's this, and there's that. So, you have Chicago, very nice. But your board meter's rating about like 1.5. You know what I mean? Alright, but it's like a social contract. It's like very nice, and it's now excellent, wonderful, very well spoken. So, imagine that what we just had in Agada was not in Agada. Okay? No, it's Bihishamba. Imagine Bihishamba was not in Agada, but Bihishamba was something your Uncle Phil said at the same Right? So Uncle Phil gets up after the Brisbane, I'm sorry, just imagine this, and, you know, raises his cup of wine very high, and says, excuse me, I'd just like to say something. He says, Uncle Phil, please sit down. No, I, I have to say something. The he shonda. This over here, this promise that Hashem made to happen wasn't a one-time promise. The whole government has always stood for us. The whole government, it always takes care of us. Hashem wasn't talking about Egypt. He was talking about the Crusades. He was talking about the was talking about everything. That's what he meant. Right? Uncle Phil sits down. Okay, so what is your board meter reading? Like that's what the Hisham, that, that's what the Christian of Zara was? The whole door of the door is like, if the Havana didn't tell this, your board meter was reading about 1.5. It's like that's not what the Christian of Zara meant. Read the words of the Christian of Zara. Gary Azarah, your children will be. Barrett's Lola had the land out there above other, they'll be enslaved there. The Inuata, they'll be, they'll be in servitude there. They'll be oppressed for 400 years. Vastra can't get to the push at all. And afterwards, they'll come out with great wealth. Right? Doravia Shubohena. And the fourth generation will return here. What's this talking about? It's talking about Mitzrayim. Right? That's what it's talking It's talking about Mitzrayim. Uncle Phil says, no, it's not talking about Mitzrayim. No, it's also talking about Mitzrayim. It's talking about the whole world. Oh, he's talking about everything. That's, but, so, you know, you would tell Uncle Phil, you'd say, never Uncle Phil, have a little bit too much wine. You wouldn't be impressed with what Uncle Phil says, but it's not Uncle Phil. This is the Haggadah talk. So the Haggadah wants you to take this seriously. How did the Haggadah know this is true? That's what I want to try to work on with you today. How did the Haggadah know this is true? If I'm going to say it, it's not a 1.5 on the board meter. It's like 8 or a 9 or a 10. Right? Where did the Haggadah get this idea from? Okay, so I want to share a theory with you. The theory is going to take us through and a speed read through much of the second half of Sacred Bracious. Very quickly. Let me begin by asking a few questions about the second half of Sacred Bracious. Biblical scholars, modern biblical scholars, especially those who are not particularly orthodox, not orthodox at all, one of the favorite verses that they like to quote is an obscure verse in chapter 36 that seems to establish that the Torah was not written when it seems to have been written. The verses, a verse that appears deep in the Toldot of Asaph, where it says, the Elah HaMalachim Asher Malcho Be'edom, Lifnei Malach Melach Yisra'el. And these are the kings that reigned in Edom long before a king ever reigned in Israel. And you understand the problem, right? Because when the Torah written, right? So like we believe the Torah was written 
also walked before than wherever it came to Israel. So it's like, what's that verse doing? That, that verse sounds like it's interpolated much later. So how, if you're an Orthodox Jew, do you understand that verse deep in the heart of chapter 36? For that matter, how do you understand the whole of chapter 36? Whole of chapter 36 seems like an unconscionable digression from the main thrust of the story. Right? What's the main thrust of the story? You've got, until chapter 36, you've got the story of Yaakov, this long story of Yaakov. Before that, the story of Avon, the story of Yitzhak, Yaakov. From chapter 37 through the rest of Gracious, what do you have? The story of Yosef. Right? So that sort of works. Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Yosef, right? Except for chapter 36. What's chapter 36? Show you chapter 36. Ela told us Esav Hiena. These are the told us of Esav. Esav Lakachas Nasha Bendos Knan. The Basmas Basishmal, and there was this long list of, of toldos of Esav and the kings of Esav and the whole long line of Esav, generation after generation, the princes and the whole thing. And it's like, oh, come on. Like, I need a whole chapter like, of, of this mind numbing genealogy of Esav. Like, why is this even here? Right? What is chapter 36 doing in our Bible? Okay, next question for you. Right around chapter 36, we've got chapter 34. Chapter 34 is the sorry episode of the rape of Dina and the massacre of Shechem. Exactly what's that story doing there? Why is it so important for us to know? But two interesting things about that story. After Shimon and Levi carry out their attack on the people of Shechem, They are castigated by Yaakov in the following language. Vayomer Yaakov al Shimon Levi. I can show this to you. 34. Right over here. Vayomer Yaakov al Shimon Levi. Achartemoti. Lavisheni Biyoshve Eretz Kanani. You have sullied me to cause my reputation to stink in the um, among the indigenous peoples of the land. Everyone's going to gather up against me and destroy me at this point. What was that language, Achartemoti, you have sullied me. 
When else does that language ever appear? The language of someone being accused of selling Jacob or Israel, for that matter. The language of I am tough rich. Anybody? Not Lohan, actually. Give me a hint. The Joshua. Seder Yoshua. The story of Achan. The story of Achan, after Achan takes from the booty of Eureka against the law, so Yoshua gathers men and accuses them, and the accusation is. Men are our tongues. Look how you sully us. Yahweh may God sully you. The first time the language of Ahor is ever used for the rape of Dina, it's never used again in the Torah. The next time it's used is with the story of Ahor in Joshua. You might say that's a coincidence. Except there's something else that happens in the story of the rape of Dina. Remember when Shimon and Levi find out about the rape of their sister? When Shimon and Levi find out the rape of their sister, they say, An abomination has happened in Israel, and such should never be done. The rape of the daughter of Yaakov. Interestingly, that same phrase, the Yisrael, appears in the Ahab story also. It's an abomination what what uh, what Ahab did. But these textual connections are strange because if you think about the rape of Dina, what in the world would it have to do with the story of Ahab? I mean, what does Dina being raped have to do with Ahab taking some nice stuff from Eureka? Right? Like, why are those two stories even connected? One other question about the Brisbane Absarim itself. The symbolism of the Brisbane Absarim is all strange, isn't it? You know what happens in that dark vision, that night vision that Avram has? Let me show it to you. I'll put it on the screen if you can see it. I know the contrast isn't great here, but let's see what we can find. He says, how do I know that I'm going to inherit the land? God says, oh, how do I know? Let me just uh, show you something here. Take from me three calves, and three goats, and three rams, and these birds. Take all the animals and split them in half and cut them in half, and arrange the pieces on two sides to kind of make a walkway. But don't kill the birds. And then Avram does that, and as Avram does that, these vultures begin to descend upon the corpses of the animals. But Avram had to, to, to cause the vultures to fly away. And then 
the sun goes down and this dark dread falls upon Avram and then he has this prophecy know that your children will be strangers in the land not their own they're going to be enslaved for 400 years and the nation that they're going to that's going to enslave them I will judge and afterwards they'll go out with great wealth the the fourth generation will return here and then at the very end the final moment of this vision a cauldron of smoke and a pillar of fire Avar ben goes through these carcasses, these, these two sides, and the birds fly, and the, the living birds fly, and the Tanur travels through the pathway of the Zari. It's a very, very strange prophecy. It's weird. It feels like it came out of Harry Potter. Right? It, it's like cauldrons and incantations and vultures. It's got all the all these weird elements. What does it mean? Why is having like a stairway of vultures? What's with the Tanur Eish Lapid Ashan? What's with the A's Meshulash and the Ayan Meshulash, the Torah of the and the whole thing is just weird and strange. So tonight I'd like to suggest a theory to you about what the Bristan of Sara means. A theory that I think the Balhada shares. Balhada is showing you the tip of the iceberg. I want to try to elaborate what I think might be the rest of the iceberg. Let's start with the prophecy of the Christian of Sarah. What did it mean? What was all the weird stuff? Let's start with Myra. For those of you who ever doubted Myra, the notion of summoning the over Ben Hadzarim Ha'ela should ring a bell for you. Tanur Eish Lapid Hashan was over at Benazarim, passed through these pieces. He now admired, where do you have that language of something that's over between the pieces in Zarim? What does that remind you of? Hamavir Bana, same language of Mahavir from Oger, Hamavir Bana Bein Yisrael, Yamsin. Somebody God caused his children to pass through the pieces of Yamsa. Okay, interesting. So, Mari uses that same language from the Brisbane of Sarm to talk about the sea crossing of Yamsa. So now go back to, no, wait a second, is it possible that that image might have been a replication in the times of Abba, a symbolic replication of the sea crossing? Almost as if God was saying, like, cut these animals up and arrange it, and I'm like, I'm going to give you a vision of what it's going to look like. I'm telling you that there will come a time when you're going to leave Egypt after all of this, and this, after the 400 years, and this is what it's going to look like. It's going to look like this. And think about the Tanur Eishlach, the Yashan, what we're going to remind you In Yashan, the pillar of fire and smoke. Was there a pillar of fire and smoke in Yamsuk? Sure was. Right? So it's like God saying, this is what it's going to look like. This magical pillar of fire and smoke. And there's going to be all these dead animals. So there's going to be two animals that aren't dead. These birds, right? So who are the birds then? The ones who survived. They're us. The birds that fly free. Right? 
And then the corpses of all these animals, who are they? Seemingly the Mitzrim that died, right? Because there's death that comes. And the Mitzrim died. Leading to one of our cases, who are the vultures? What's the deal with those vultures? Almost like there's two birds. There's birds that fly through the path. There's also birds that that descend upon the corpses. And what were those about? Who were those? And besides, why those particular animals? Why three sets of animals? And why are the animals an island of all things? Three rams, three goats, three eggs, three calves. Why those three animals? Is there any meaning of that particular symbology? So I like to suggest a theory about the animals and why there are three of them. Theory actually comes from Emmanuel Chalet, my colleague Alec Bailey. Here is the background to Emmanuel theory. And I think the background to Uncle Phil's declaration that Ihisha Amda is an iterative promise that the Brisbane of Sarn wasn't a one-time promise, but was a promise that had many iterations. Perhaps in the Torah itself, there were three iterations. I am the Shulash. A is the Shulash. Egla the Shulash. Three different iterations of the promise. And that's just in the Torah itself. And in history, maybe even more. What were the three iterations? How did they work? What did they look like? How could there be three iterations? It looks like there's one thing. So I heard that a report later saw that somebody had written it down. Something Rabbi Soloveitchik had once said. I want to quote it to you. Soloveitchik began by asking the following question. Yaakov in the house of Lavan decides at some point after 20 years of long labor that it's time to leave. And the language that indicates that it's time to leave is I don't have the exact address of where it is. I'm not going to show it to you now. But the language is by Yehi Kasher Yalda Rachel Yosef it happened when Rachel gave birth to Yosef. The Yaakov said to Laban, Shalatini ba'elcha amotami la'arsi. Let me go. Let me go home. Let me go back to my own land. But Professor Lynch pointed out that the language of the verse is strange because it sounds like Yaakov is referencing something about the birth of Yosef Here's his answer. Yaakov knew how to do that. 
There had been a promise in the family that Yaakov knew about. Everyone knew about the promise, but nobody knew exactly what it meant. Because the promise contained certain ambiguities. The promise was the brisket outside. Genesis chapter 15. Gary has our Akhaberat's Lobanesh, the Abadim, the Ewotam, Arabayachan, the Doraim, the fundamental contradiction of the promise that made it so hard to understand what it was talking about was the following. You know, we know what the promise ended up referring to. It ended up referring to Egypt, slavery in Egypt. But the problem is you never read the Torah with the end in mind. And just because you know that doesn't mean that anybody else knew that. Maybe doesn't mean it was a foregone conclusion. It never mentions Egypt in the promise. Gary has our Akhaberat's Lola. Your children will be strangers in the land not their own. Could be anywhere. How long were they supposed to be strangers? Four hundred years. There's only one problem with that. When are they supposed to go home? Doravina Shuboeim. See the problem. Four hundred years is a long time. Four generations? Not such a long time. Your grandfather and your kid is four generations. That's not 400 years. So like, how does that work? How does it work that you're enslaved for 400 years but the fourth generation goes home? It sounds like an internal problem in the prophecy itself. Now, there could be answers to it. The Ramam, for example, suggests that whenever there's a prophecy of bad tidings, the prophecy doesn't have to come true in full in order for the prophecy to be valid. It could be a worst case scenario. So in other words, the Ramam says, you can never say that someone's a dummy shekel, a false prophet, because they're a prophet of doom. Because it could be that people that it wasn't so bad. Right? So the 400 years not being 400 years isn't problematic. Right? It's almost like there's a range. Right? Fourth generation comes home is like the best part of the range. Worst part of the range is like, you know, 400 years. It's like somewhere in there. That's like a possibility. But there's like an inherent ambiguity built into this prophecy. And Yahweh says, what's that? The fourth generation comes home. So, Abraham, that would be generation number one. Yitzhak, that would be generation number two. Me, Yaakov, that would be generation number three. My son would be generation number four. Yosef would be generation three. Now, why Yosef? Who's Yosef? And why would that matter? The first son of Rachel. was always the one I was supposed to marry. So when Rachel gives birth to her first son, it's time. The fourth generation is finally coming. Shalpeni, almost like Shalpeni, Shalakatami, Yahoshua, the same words approach it. It's time to go home. He says to himself, Gary Azaracha, the promise was, your children will be sojourners, will be Garen. I was Garen in the land that wasn't my own. I was Garen in Laban's house. What does he tell Asa? I was a gear in Laban's house. So I was a gear. 
Jerry has an alpha barracks Lola and above us. And they'll be enslaved. Well, I worked with the Cardinal Bottom's house, that's me. I was a slave. The Inu happens when Yaakov leaves, yeah? Go ahead. It's a matter of flaw and mystery because God says to Abraham you will descend goodness in plural will be strangers. Well, it's true. He he does have descendants. He's got kids. They're also strangers. They're not with Lavan. Yeah, they are. He's got kids with Lavan. Oh, sure. Right? He's he's got little kids. They're little, but they're there. They're in Lavan's house. they're, They're all born except for Binyamin. Are they working? No, but they're, I mean, they're, they're in a, that's an interesting question, but they may be in a slavery-like state because if you think about it, Lovin thinks he owns them. Lovin wants all of them, right? Let me show you some interesting language. When Lovin chases Yaakov, after Yaakov leaves, you have this language, Vayugad lelovan bayomashlishi kibarach Yaakov. And it was told to Lovin on the third day, that Yaakov had fled. When else do you have that kind of language? When else in the Torah do you ever have, you can express it algebraically, by you got X ki barach Y. And it was told to X that Y had fled. The only other example is on the right hand side of the screen. Vayugad lemelach Mitzrayim ki barach ki barach ha'am. 
and was told to the king of Egypt that the people had fled. So what happened? Lavan took his compatriots. And what did Paro do? Paro took his compatriots. And what did they do? Lavan chased after him. Paro chased after the Jews. Eventually, Vayaseg Lavan as Yaakov. Lavan caught up to Yaakov. Vayasiguotam Chonim Alayam. Paro caught up to the Jews. Four verbs in quick succession, all the same. All the same. What does that scene suggest? Maybe Yaakov wasn't wrong. He was living through something that was eerily like Shiva Mitzrayim. That maybe could have even been Shiva Mitzrayim. Think about what happens next. Yaakov escapes the house of Lavan. And then what happens? Let's read. He encounters... Asav. And then manages to escape Asav. Vayashav Asav Bayomahu Asav Ladarkosira. Asav then goes to Seir, the place of his new inheritance. Vyakov? Yaakov goes to Sukkos and then to Shechem. Vayovo Yaakov Shalem Ir Shechem. He comes whole to Shechem, Asher Be'eretz Canaan, in the land of Canaan, Bevo Mipadaran, having come from Chutzlaretz, Vayichan at Pnei'ir, and he encamped on the face of the city, but then he didn't just encamp there, Vayichan at Chalkat he bought a field on the outskirts of Shechem, Asher Natasha where he had pitched his tent. He bought it from Chamor, the father of Shechem, he bought it from Me'ak Sita. For a hundred talents of silver. And there he made an altar and called out to the God of Israel. Strange, he's in Shechem, buying land in Shechem, building a Mizbeach and calling out to the God of Israel. What does this remind you of? Why do I care that he's in Shechem, he's building a Mizbeach, he's calling out to God now? What does this remind you of? Let's go back to what Joshua was telling us back in chapter 24. Joshua began with a story, the story we tell in the Haggadah, the earliest story of Avram. How did that story begin? Our fathers were worshippers of other gods. Naomi, going back to the time in the world. And then, I took Avram, 
go back into the text of Avram where that happened. It's right over here. Where was Avram? That was not interesting. Avram was in Shem when all that happened. And what did he do in Shechem? Vayiven lo mizbeach. He built a mizbeach in Shechem. And he pitched his tent in Shechem. Vayet o Allah. Bein beit el miyam vayay mikedem. Vayiven shem mizbeach. He built this mizbeach to Hashem. Vayikra b'shem Hashem. He called on the name of God. It's all the stuff that's happening now with Yaakov. Later on, he's going to go down to Mitzrayim, but he's going to come back to Shem. And when he comes back to Shem, that's when God calls him to walk the land. What were you doing walking the land? If you were Abram, what were you doing when you were walking the land? It feels like you're taking possession of the land. You're beginning to possess the land. It didn't happen yet in time to Abram. It's almost like Yaakov's had this chance to make it happen in his time. To relive, to re-walk Abram's path. To go back to Shem, the place where the promise first happened. To actually not just walk in the land, but be the first one to buy a plot in the land. The place that he's going to live. If he took his tent and, he, and he's going to make a house, and he's going to build this, and he bought it for a hundred talents of silver. Shem is going to be the place where it starts. By the way, go back to the Haggadah. Where was Yeshua when he made his great declaration to the children of Israel? He brought everyone to Shem. That's where Yeshua was after they went through their river crossing. When Yeshua declares and says, I have a story to tell you. What's the story that Yeshua is telling? I have a story to tell you. We weren't the first ones to stand in Shem, thinking that we were the ones who inherit the land. That story happened a bunch of times. It began with Adam. When Adam crossed the river, like we crossed the sea, when Adam came to Shem, when Adam thought it was him, when Adam got the prophecy, it all began with him, and he thought it was going to be him. Just like later on, the So here is Yaakov. Let's go back to Yaakov's story. Yaakov's in Shem. And what happens in Shem? Tragedy strikes. After Yaakov buys his house and settles down, what does Yaakov think is happening? He thinks he's there. He thinks he's building the nation. He's come to Shem. He's back in the land. He's going to build the nation. And he's thinking, you know, about that first day on summer. What was that phrase? And 
that I was going to be a heir, I was a heir. That I was going to be a slave, I was a slave. Love on that. The ego son, and I was going to be oppressed. And he's thinking that I'm the strength of the, of the ego of my part. Like, no, no, that never really happened. I mean, like, too, I worked hard for love, and never really says that I, I was oppressed by love. But what happens to Shadow? What happens to me? What's the word for rape? That's how I'm now. She's dead. She experiences evil. It's like, yeah, this is the last piece of the puzzle. This rape, and it's tragic, it's awful. The question is, if you just ride through this last tragedy of Inuokan, somehow you could come out of it on the other side, and there would be, and, and it would be over. Settle the land. Go to Ravise. I should wait a fourth generation. Yosef is returning home. You're going to build the land. You're going to come with Rukush Gadol. And what happens? What happens is, word of the rape gets to Yaakov, and Yaakov is silent. Shimon and Levi come home, and they're outraged. How could you have been silent? And at that point, Hamor comes out to the children of Yaakov to negotiate. And what's his negotiating stance? Shem, my son, he really likes your daughter. He'd really like to marry her. And we will intermarry with you. Your children will be given to us. Our children will be given to you. And you will sit with us. You will dwell with us. The land will be yours. You will be able to be a citizen. You will be able to profit with it. You will be able to do business here. You will have all the rights. You will have green cards. You will have citizenship. You will have passports. You will have everything. And you will take possession of it. I don't care what the price is. Tell me what the price is. Whatever you ask, I will do. Just give me this girl as my wife. And the children of Yaakov answered with deceit. They take the Enoi, they answer with their own kind of with their own answers. What was happening here? Why were the children of Yaakov so afraid? Then Yaakov had been silent. Why did Yaakov's silence make a difference? And what do you think, by the way, of Hamor's proposal? What do you think of Hamor's proposal? Good proposal or bad proposal? That is what he said. You're the short of Yaakov. What do you say? Good proposal or bad proposal? Okay, so it's like assimilation. The proposal of assimilation is the end of the children of God. Like 
But the people of Hamura, they don't really know about the theological aspects of the Atlas so much, so, so they can't blame them. Seems like a nice proposal from their standpoint, even though it's an offer that you have to refuse for perhaps the reasons that you're suggesting. You can't assimilate it to that. But people of Hamura can't know it. But that doesn't make it a proposal that lacks integrity. But there actually is something that makes it a proposal that lacks integrity. What's that? What? They still have it. That's not how you negotiate. Right? You don't keep Dina locked up while you negotiate. You return Dina and we can talk. You know what I mean? That, I think, is where the brothers are coming from. The brothers are enraged. Why? Because this is actually the first time, it's interesting that and the Ramban, in his analysis, the Ramban, both take this position, this is the first time the children of Yahweh are negotiating as a nation, not just as a family. They're actually as a nation engaged in a diplomatic negotiation with another sovereign entity, right? And there's a diplomatic negotiation going on that, that, that's delicate about the release of these hostages, the release of these captives, the well-being terms of the, of the release. And in terms of diplomacy, the point that the children of Yaakov are making is that they had, you had the chance to be outraged in the protests and to make a diplomatic incident out of it, you, the second you heard about this, and you came and said, this is an outrage, what was done to my daughter, none of this negotiation happens. We don't get put in this impossible position where we have to assimilate to them. Because what are we going to say? No? You can't say no to that offer. That's a good offer. Well, come and join us. What do you say? Have I lost principles? What are you, you going to say? It's true, it's kind of slimy the way they're negotiating, they're keeping her, but they have to cover the plausible deniability of this incredible economic offer. What are you going to say? You put us in an impossible position. So along comes Shimon by Yamu Bamir. Now, I am the defense attorney for Shimon for the terrible mess of Shem. I'll tell you the argument that I would make. This was not a massacre with malice at the Again, you have to read with the end in mind. If you were Shimon and Lady, think diplomacy. What do they do when they answer the mirror? And here's what they said. We'd love to accept your proposal. One little thing we need to be done. Mila. Circumcision. It's a thing for us, all of our males are circumcised. We can't really, you know, get together with you guys without circumcision. Circumcision and you got circumcision for everyone, you gotta be. What are Shimon and Lady thinking? Remember guys, this is, right? This is like 2000 BCE, right? This is that, right? No antibiotics, no nothing, no anesthesia. Circumcision all around, right? How is this gonna go down? Right? Not so much. You know what I mean? Like, what powers of persuasion are you going to have? This isn't going down. So it's like, oh, you're, you see what's happening diplomatically. There's this little diplomatic back and forth. You made us an offer we can't refuse, but we must refuse. We'll make you an offer with cover. And we'll see whether you refuse it. Because if you refuse the offer, then the Lachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachach
that the Lord comes and manages to convince his entire community to undergo circumcision. Crazy. Now they're stuck. The plot failed. So they come in an attempted mission to rescue Tina and kill everybody so that there won't be anyone to chase after them. This is the defense argument for Shimon and Lady. But there's one last little thing to keep in mind. What just happened when they did move up? All of them. For the purpose of coming together with the children of Israel on our terms. They just converted. Now think about the Christian I'm sorry. Gary and your children will be Gary in a land not their own. The enslaved, and they'll go through Inui in Yaakov's iteration that Inui just happened. Little did anyone know that maybe the Inui would be the bridge to the next thing. You really have great wealth, and you will come and inherit the land will be yours. Why? Because until now, the land, which land? The land of Israel wasn't your own. When would it become your own? When the indigenous people, the Amori, would come, perhaps in the best case creation, they would come, and they would convert, and they'd be part of you. And they said, come, and you can have the land. It will be your land. Instead of being assimilation on your terms, what if it's assimilation on our terms? And you guys join us, and you and Elon, you're part of us. But Shiva only didn't see that. And tragically, they destroyed it. They took Dina, and the first opportunity was lost. And then what happened? And then what happened is you get chapter 36. The told out the place. But all things, why? Because the fourth generation had arrived. It was time for the promise to happen. What was the promise? Think about how Abraham would have seen the promise. Think about how Yoshua came promise from Abraham's point of view. Abraham crossed the river and God promised me that I have many kids and that promise is starting to happen. I have Isaac, that's my first kid. I go from zero to 60, zero to one kid at the end of my life. It's like many kids, but Isaac has two kids. Yaakov and Asa, that's amazing. And I think the fourth generation is going to be Yaakov and we're all going to return and it's going to be great. And it almost was Yaakov or the child of Yaakov. But Think about how Abram was seen. The Etem Leyitzvah, as Yeshua said, and Yaakov and Esau. Why are we talking about Esau? Because in the first iteration, maybe it could have been both. Yaakov and Esau, they both go into the land. But why don't Yaakov and Esau go into the land? Because something happens that causes those two to part ways. Something happens. They can't get along. <clears throat> what happens? Think about what causes Yahweh later on, this whole thing. After the great Dina, after Shem, after the Tolo of Esa, right? It's all happening. Yahweh comes into the land, by Yeshim Yahweh, the earth the ground, the earth come. Finally settling down. He's finally taking possession of the land. And what do Hazal tell us in the words by Yeshua Yahweh, Barak, and Korea? That he's finally settled in the land 
that his father is a bit sojourner. She was taking possession of it. It was, he was going to make it happen. What did God say? Yaakov thought it was over. Yaakov thought his job was to establish the nation. Come on, small brothers, let's go This is the moment that Mahir Yosef happens. Mahir Yosef comes and destroys the whole thing. And when Mahir Yosef comes, it all happens all over again. Everyone's going to go down to exile. But this time, will be exiled for 210 years, not 21 years. This time it won't just be servitude in father-in-law's house. It'll be servitude for real. This time it won't just be one girl who was raped. It'll be the evil economy, the destruction of an entire people through terrible oppression. The sale of Yosef throws Yisrael into exile. Just the same way, earlier, Yahweh himself had been thrown into what happens in the What happens in the Yosef is children take a goat and they slaughter a goat and they put blood on the goat and they bring it to father. And they deceive father about a child that father loved. Does that remind you of any other story? It reminds you of the first goats in the story when the child took a goat and brought it to father where he told his brother and impersonated with his brother and he father about them, about a, about a trial that father loved. And in the wake of that, Yaakov went down into exile. Goats and goats one brings us down to exile. Goats and goats two bring us down into exile. Through all of this, what? The sale of the Yosef starts in China. <coughs> So go back to the Mishkan of Sarah. There were three there were three carcasses. I want to argue that three carcasses with three iterations. Three times it's going to happen. <coughs> Yitzhak was a gear in the land of Israel. Yitzhak was quasi enslaved to the Christian. It could have been him, but it's not Yitzhak. Why? Because right when it was in the coming home and establishing the nation, that's the moment that Yaakov deceives Asaph. And then it's not Asaph anymore. Yaakov and Asaph go their separate ways. And then, if anything, it's Yaakov and it's Yosef. But then Mahir Yosef comes along and destroys that. So now it's Hansel going into slavery. What about the fourth generation, by the way, at the end of the road? After 400 years, what about the fourth generation when we return home? Where is the fourth generation then? What does Moshe make sure to take with them as they leave the bones of the Yosef? Because the fourth generation has to return home. The fourth generation will always return the Brisbane of Sarnam had iteration after iteration after iteration. Each iteration was signaled by an idol, iteration number one, an A's, iteration number two, and a Bell's, iteration number three. The idol is the beginning of Yitzhak's chance to make it happen. The idol with Yitzhak is when? 
campaign. Once the idea happens, this company gets this chance to try to be the duration of the first summer. It'll make everything happen. When that fails, because of Ghost and Ghost One, Yakov's second face of it's Yakov's turn to try to bring home the bacon, so to speak, and make it happen for him. And that is the moment of AIDS, because what does Yakov bring to his father that destroys the possibility of his father? Right? It is what he comes to his father with the goat, right? With, with the A's. And then there's the A's iteration. Only to have that destroyed, when is that for sure not happening? When it will for sure be all of Israel in Chibu and Egypt? The time of the Agamos. Agamos, anyone? Where do you have Agamos later on in the generations? The calves. But they're not calves anymore. Where are the Agamos? Now, Agolos were the chariots, the word for chariots, that Yosef had sent to fetch Yahweh and bring him down to the sky. That's the beginning of the third generation. That's when it all changes. So, Vayishamda is not telling you fanciful things. Vayishamda is telling you the truth. Vayishamda lavasenu velano. This prophecy had many iterations. It could have happened in many different kinds of ways. It ended up happening in the third iteration, but it didn't happen to happen that way. It could have happened in many ways. And therefore, what do we have after Behishamda? The very next words of God are the same Ulma. What is the same Ulma? Come, I'll prove it to you. Come and learn it. I'll show you the Behishamda. Because, say Ulma. Look at Lava and look at Paro. Lava was so much worse than Paro. Why are we comparing Lava and Paro? Lava and Paro were the same. Lava was the oppressor in iteration number two. Paro was the oppressor in iteration number three. They're the same thing. It's not the same. Lava had the way. It was even worse than Paro because Lava had his way. He called Yaakov to the and everything would have lost. But Paro had his way. Only the males would be lost. But it's the same thing. Same thing I'll show you. The iterations have over and over. Lava, just power. Why is that going to say this? I want to close with the following thought. Why is that going to tell about this on a night that all we had to do was tell the story of Jesus and Sarah? Why tell us about the many possible iterations of Christian Sarah? The answer, I think, is just the way I see it. But the answer goes all the way back to Malachi, the very beginning of Malachi. The answer is that for 97% of Jewish history, there's a basic problem that anyone reading Malachi would have had, reading Malachi celebrating the Sixth Messiah on the night of the Sabbath. It's a problem that you and I don't experience that much. Because if you think about it, we live at a fairly anomalous time in Jewish history. We live at a time when things are good. We live at a time where you're in Israel, you're in America, you know, basically things are good. Right? We're basically redeemed. Feels that way. But for 97% of Jewish history, it wasn't that. How do you celebrate Pesach, the night of redemption, when with your four cups of wine, when you're so thrilled about redeeming, 
How do you experience that happiness when you are cowering in the basement, trying to escape the horse of the smell that you have how do you celebrate Pesach when you're in hiding during the first few seconds? How good does it feel when you're in a sewer in Mila 18, right, 70 years ago at home? How do you celebrate Passover with a straight face, the night of freedom, when you're asleep? This is the problem of all our time. When we begin our Seder, as the Rabbah said, as we do in Gullahs, this is how the Bnei Hagol had the Seder. The first part of the Seder is the Bnei Hagol. And it's the Haggadah trying to give its answer of how you can point to the poor man to that and say that I'm still eating the poor man to that. Right now I'm here, but tomorrow maybe I'll be there. How do I celebrate the Seder? The answer to the Baha'i it's a look at the person outside. Because there's two possibilities when you look at the person outside. One possibility is it was a one-time promise. God was telling Abraham that his children would be slaves in a land not their own. And when that was over, it was over. But then it only hadn't even happened. But the Baha'u'llah was convinced that that wasn't true. There's another possibility. It was a promise of many iterations. It was a promise of many iterations. What does that mean? Need for promise like this. The promise was, Adam, I love you. You want to know how you get to the land? What do you do? So, when God says what he's worried about, when God says what he's worried about, the matter says what he's worried about, my kids won't live up to it, how do I really know? God says, let me tell One way or the other, it's going to happen. Could be the long row, could be the short row, and nobody's going to happen because I love you. And because I'm going to be your backstop. Because one way or the other, I promise you that, if, that I can't control your actions. You may get yourself into dogs. You may get yourself into exile. You might have brothers deceiving brothers, and you might have to end up running the law and house. So frankly, I'm looking at history, I see your children, they're going to be here, they'll land off their own, they're going to get themselves in trouble. They'll get themselves in love on trouble. They'll get themselves in trying trouble. I don't know exactly the trouble, they'll have to see what people get their trouble, and you're going to get yourself in trouble. <laughs> what I want to tell you is, I can't control that. There is our outcome, I'm telling you, I'm putting that in here, as I'm telling you, I see that they're going to become here. I see that they're going to become enslaved. I'm not saying it has to happen, I'm seeing what happens in the future, but I will tell you one thing, that if it happens, the one thing I take responsibility for is God has a boy I will be the one to exactly exact judgment against anybody that hurts my beloved, and I will bring you out. And that will be, you can get yourself in trouble, but I will be the one to exact judgment against them, leading you out. And I will make sure to take you out. Your job is to understand that I'm taking you out. And when I take you out, to understand that that is me. You're the little bird. But you're not the Don't go with your promises. If you do, what are you going to say? You're saying it's your victory? What was the opportunity? 
If you look at the Apple's complaint, it says I'm talking about me, it wasn't the Mexican. It was what happened after the Mexican. The name Yaakov Babylon, the children of Yaakov came and pillaged the Philistines. And that's when Yaakov said, You damaged my reputation. Because if it was just the war, then God helped us win the war because we saved our daughters. But what do you do with pillaging the Philistines? If you're the little bird, you're not the vulture. God is there to save you, and it's miraculous. And you have to honor that miracle. And the message of the Haggadah is the message of hope, the message of the risen son. I can't control whether you get yourself in trouble, but I can control that I will always be your backstop, and I will be there to take you out. And when, in fact, at the end of the third iteration, God did take us out, God repeated that when He came to Moshe to say, He said, "I'm taking." God said, what's your name? And God said, my name is Ekashet I will do that which I will do. And then God changed and said, Ekashet, my name is Ekashet. And Chazal tell us a fascinating negative about that. They said, that you know what Ekashet Asher means? Ekashet means the same God that is with you during this time of trouble would be the God that would always be to which the Lord say, Moshe answered, they have enough on their hands now. They can't hear about future sorrows. But God was telling them about future sorrows, even though they couldn't hear it because it was true. And sometimes people in the pain don't hear a little piece of the truth. That's all they can hear. So God says, Come on, don't come all the way. It's all truth. I'm there in iteration after iteration after iteration. Whatever you're going just tell them, hey, you're Just tell them, I'm with you now. That's all they need to know now. That's all they need to know then. But us, after the Crusades, after the Trumpets of Nazareth, after the Holocaust, we have to hear the other conditions. Hey, Asher, hey. We too are in one of those conditions. And just as we were saying before, the whole world of the Lord from the Mahmoud, from the that promise is always active. There is a reason. And it can change tomorrow. And that's the message of the Bible to 97% of the Jewish people of how you celebrate Jesus when you're not getting it. That's the color I'll leave you with. What I've done here, by the way, is a three-part series. So I've completed this section in two parts. Next week, we're going to go back to the actual title of the series, which was his history side from the year to year. What do we call this? Uh, we call it the Magic of Atbash and Yitzhak Mitzrayim. A fascinating Atbash pattern in the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Uh, it'll really block your savior still further. So come back next week and get everyone to make a space to talk about that. We'll see you next time. Beautiful.